You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. All right, hey, it's Kevin, and today I'm going to be talking about high protein diets. And actually, I'm going to be reading about high protein diets uh, because I just finished this quite lengthy article. You might call it a book, so this is going to be the ebook version. And for the most part, I'm just going to read it. I might go off cuff for a little bit, but I'm going to try and stay, you know, to the word so that I don't keep you here forever and get through all the information uh, as fast as possible. And I probably read pretty quick so that you don't have to listen to me on 2x speed if you don't want to. But if you do, then man, we're really going to be hauling through it. So high protein diets. And if you want to read this, it's at kevinstock.io and you can just find it under nutrition articles. Okay. So for most of my adult life, I've eaten quite a high protein diet, you know, throughout high school, college, dental school, you know, times when body composition was a primary focus for me, it was clear that eating protein way above RDA guidelines was the way for me to build muscle, stay lean and obtain the body composition that I wanted. And during this time, I heard all the typical fears around eating too much protein, like too much protein is going to damage your kidneys, livers, and give you gout, or the acid load is going to leach calcium out of your bones, or too much protein just turns to sugar anyways through gluconeogenesis, and it elevates cortisol. Uh, It's going to age you faster, you know, mTOR, IGF-1, it's going to decrease your life expectancy. So I heard all these things uh, for a long time. The concerns go on and on. because fears around protein are so prevalent, I decided to write and now talk about this uh, article on protein backwards, so to speak. And I want to start by addressing these fears first. So in the first half of, of this, we're going to talk about the six most common fears around eating high protein diets. And then the second half, we're going to talk about why that instead of fearing protein, you should perhaps consider eating a high protein diet. It'll be much more practical. Okay. Uh, and so while this is going to be a long talk here, hopefully not too long, uh, if you make it through to the end, hopefully you're going to be equipped with more knowledge than you know most dietitians, even your doctor probably knows about what I would consider the most important macronutrient. Uh, but more importantly, you're going to be equipped with you know a new powerful tool in your toolbox to transform your health. All right. So let's go to part one, dangers of high protein diets in the first, you know, the first fear is this excess protein and gluconeogenesis uh, because the number one question I get is doesn't too much protein just turn into sugar doesn't just too much steak equal cake and this fear is especially pronounced among ketogenic dieters where too much protein can kick you out of ketosis or people with underlying blood sugar issues like prediabetes diabetes hyperinsulinemia where too much protein can raise blood glucose so the argument goes something like this You can't store protein like you can carbs because you can store carbs as glycogen or fat because you can store fat as adipose tissue. So if you eat more protein than the body can use, it gets converted to sugar, glucose, right? Uh, So you might as well just eat cake. Uh, But to adequately address this fear, uh, this section is going to be the most complex. And (laughs) hopefully, you know, the rest of the article is going to be easier to digest. But, you know, to kind of get through the nuance and some of the science, we have to get a little bit technical here to try and understand gluconeogenesis. Uh, But this foundational understanding of protein metabolism, I think it will be useful in understanding all the other issues surrounding protein. 
So let's talk about protein pathways. When you eat protein, it gets broken down into amino acids, which are then absorbed by the body via amino acid transporters. The gut itself will use a lot of these amino acids, especially those found in animal foods like glutamate, glutamine, branched amino acids, threonine, cysteine, and arginine. And so I ask, like, is it really a wonder why so many people who are healing their guts on a meat-based or carnivore diet? Uh, so the small intestines can hold on to protein, creating you know what some people call an amino acid pool. It makes up some of the amino acid pool, which is the limited store of amino acids that the body can draw on in an as-needed basis. Uh, and because the digestion of protein, animal food in particular, is slow, you can eat a whole lot of protein in one sitting. There's this myth of 30 grams of protein per meal is all that can be absorbed. Uh, and it's been spread around the web quite a bit that, you know, if you eat more than 30 grams of protein, that's, you know, that's all you can absorb. But luckily there just uh, isn't, I mean, there there is a study that does, uh, you know, highlight this absurdity. You know, researchers had women eat 50 grams of protein in one meal versus 50 grams of protein over four different meals. And there was absolutely zero difference in the amount of protein absorbed. So the myth that you can only you know, absorb 30 grams of protein per sitting simply isn't rooted in science or supported by research. Uh, but what about 300 grams of protein per day? So accompanying the myth of 30 grams of protein per day is this uh, fear that if you eat excess protein, it's going to turn to sugar. It's going to turn into glucose and ultimately get stored as fat. But I think before we start talking about excess protein, it's important to know that protein is critical for countless processes. Protein builds and repairs our bones, ligaments, connective tissue, hair, and nails, not to mention our muscles. Proteins make antibodies and neurotransmitters. They make hormones and enzymes for everything from digestion to regulation of inflammation to running our cells and maintaining all our organs and tissues. So the fear of inadequate protein, I think, should highly trump the fear of excess protein. I mean, skimping on protein is skimping on all these vital functions. Uh, but protein doesn't stop there. It's versatile enough to be used as energy, and this is where gluconeogenesis comes in. It's a process that makes glucose, and protein can be used in this process. So let's talk about protein as an energy source. Uh, perhaps the easiest way to understand this is to look at a flow diagram, which I do have uh, in the article if you want to reference that. But if we trace through the path of protein, we can see that it first gets broken down into its constituent amino acids. Uh, the carbon skeleton of the amino acids can then be used to make energy. It can go to replenish glycogen stores in the liver and muscles and used in the production of ketones. Uh, beyond these storage mechanisms, there is also a small amino acid reservoir in the blood, which we talked a little bit about. Now, if all the functions of amino acids are taken care of and muscle and liver are filled with glycogen, amino acids can then be deaminated, turned to urea, and excreted in the urine. And finally, the great fear, they can be stored as fat via ketogenesis, lipid synthesis. Okay, now there's not one set path that protein takes when you eat it. I mean, the numerous protein paths depend on a multitude of factors, including what your current energy balance is, or there's hormonal influences, and just overall need. Uh, but let's address the primary concern here, protein and elevating blood sugar. If you eat a high carb sugar meal, uh, and you watch what your blood sugar does, you'll often find a rapid rise in blood glucose. However, with protein, you don't tend to see this. High protein meals tend to result in better blood sugar control with steady postprandial, postprandial blood glucose and the absence of large blood sugar swings. Uh, 
because some observational studies suggest that higher red meat consumption increases type 2 diabetes risk, you know, luckily researchers decided to do a systematic review of randomized clinical trials to test these observational studies. They hypothesized that higher red meat consumption would negatively influence markers of glycemic control and inflammation. But to their dismay, they found that consuming red meat above the measly recommended intake had zero negative inf influence on glycemic control or inflammation. Um, so I find it helpful to think of protein as a slow-release energy source that requires about half the insulin as carbohydrate. Uh, this is especially important in people with pre-diabetes, hyperinsulinemia, and yet this group of people tend to worry the most about eating too much protein out of the fear that's going to be converted to blood, blood sugar. But blood sugar issues, they are, not a, they are a carbohydrate problem, not a protein problem. So I think to address this fear, it's first, to it's first necessary to consider the alternatives of trying to avoid gluconeogenesis, which you can't do anyways. But fat can also be turned into glucose via its glycerol backbone. People don't consider fat as a substrate for gluconeogenesis, but it is. Uh, and further, lactate can be turned into glucose. So lactate is a byproduct of working out your muscles, and it's used for gluconeogenesis via the Cori cycle. So we have this situation where carbs can turn into sugar, proteins and fats can both be turned into sugar. Uh, not to mention working your muscles produces byproducts using gluconeogenesis and glucose production. So, you know, what's the solution? Don't eat anything, don't work out. I mean, what, what should we do about this gluconeogenesis? But I would propose that worrying about gluconeogenesis is not the answer. It's a normal, natural, and necessary process. Further, I would submit that maintaining or building lean body mass is more important than deep ketosis for most people's health objectives, including type 2 diabetics, uh, and that the steady postprandial postprandial rises in blood sugar from protein aren't what diabetics should be most concerned about a foundational principle of increasing insulin sensitivity and thus you know reversing diabetes is building lean muscle mass and this often requires at least a moderate protein intake usually much higher than most people are eating and combine this with working out you know two things that we just learned that can be used in gluconeogenesis high protein and working out uh so, and while protein and lactate, they can be using gluconeogenesis, a low protein diet and not working out, I can tell you right now, is not the solution to making better metabolic function. So perhaps you've heard of this idea of gluconeogenesis and being demand driven. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, so we know protein can be turned into glucose, but when does this happen? So turning protein into glucose via gluconeogenesis is energetically expensive. It's not something the body just defaults to. Rather, it's something called largely, for the most part, demand-driven. And a quote from uh, uh, the, this journal, journal of Diabetes titled Dietary, Protein, Dietary Proteins Contribute Little to Glucose Production Even Under Optimal Gluconeogenic Conditions in Healthy Humans, it says... All, under almost any physiological situation, an increase in gluconeogenic precursor supply alone will not drive glucose production to a higher level, suggesting that factors directly regulating the activity of the rate-limiting enzymes of glucose production normally are the sole determinants of the rate of production. Hence, there will be no increase in glucose production if the increase in gluconeogenic precursor, precursor supply, supply occurred in the absence of of stimulation of the gluconeogenic system. 
Okay, let's let's unpack that. The, the researcher, researchers don't know how to use periods very well. It's kind of a rambling on conclusion, but let's unpack it, okay? So gluco, gluconeogenesis is an ongoing process. It happens in the fully fed state and it happens in the starvation state and it happens at a fairly constant, consistent rate. Uh, based on you know research done by Jehu, Jehu, Jehor, I'm sorry, the rate of gluconeogenesis does not materially change based upon the infusion of lactate, glycerol, or alanine, even when infused at a rate which caused five times the uptake of the substrate into the liver. Okay, so why is this important? Because 90% of, gluco- of all gluconeogenesis results from just four molecules, lactate, glycerol, alanine, and glutamine. But just because you mix these ingredients together, you don't necessarily get more gluconeogenesis because it's largely a demand-driven process, not supply. So for example, let's use an analogy. Say there is a company that sells widgets and they have two options of how they can manufacture these widgets. The first option is they can manufacture 1,000 widgets up front and then store those widgets in inventory and ship them out as orders come in. Or the second ob- option they have is they can just make widgets as orders come in without any upfront manufacturing. So gluconeogenesis is like the second option. It's driven by demand, by the orders coming in, in our analogy. It doesn't just make a bunch of excess widgets, so to speak, even if it has all the materials to make those widgets. I hope that makes some sense. But if you're on a low-carb diet and the body needs glucose, how does the rate of gluconeogenesis not increase then? That's a good question if you're asking that. Well, it makes sense that if you aren't eating glucose, carbs, and the body needs a constant supply of blood glucose, which it does, then the rate of gluconeogenesis would need to increase to keep this steady supply. But this doesn't happen. Well, it turns out the body doesn't use as much glucose when glucose isn't consumed in significant quantities. It uses more fat for energy and thus gluconeogenesis remains stable. Okay, uh, another quote for, from some research, uh, and all these research articles, by the way, are linked in the article if you wanna dive in deeper. But this one suggests the hormonal changes associated with the low carbohydrate diet indeed favor gluconeogenesis indeed favor gluconeogenesis. However, the body limits glucose utilization to reduce the need for gluconeogenesis. Okay, so let's talk about ketogenesis a bit, high protein diets and ketosis. Uh, But so to recap, if you eat a low carbohydrate diet and gluconeogenesis doesn't increase, the body needs to get energy from fat, right? But let's first address the issue going through a lot of people's minds, especially who are have done ketogenic diets. And that is when I eat a lot of protein, my ketones go down, right? That's because protein can inhibit ketogenesis to varying degrees. If the liver is getting plenty of amino acids, there is a decreased need to oxidize fatty acids due to, it, due to an increase in glucose oxidation, and thus there is less ketone production. But this is largely a non-issue unless certain depths of nutritional ketosis are required for specific medical conditions like epilepsy or certain cancers. It's also very important to note however, that your blood, urine, ketone numbers aren't telling you the full story whatsoever. For example, let's say you're burning your own body fat using fatty acids as a primary fuel source. Your ketones likely won't be high whatsoever because you're going to be using these ketones for energy, not wasting ketones in your urine. So this brings us to the concept of endogenous versus exogenous ketosis. Uh, If you enter nutritional ketosis by eating a lot of fat, I mean, I'm sorry, you can enter nutritional ketosis by eating a whole lot of fat and very little carbohydrate. And it usually doesn't take too long before you start using fat as a primary fuel source. 
and as you do, you make ketones as a byproduct of fatty acid oxidation. That's how it works. However, the fat used for energy can be either dietary fat, the fat you just ate, or it can be liberated fat from stored adipose tissue. So when you measure ketones, you don't know if they are being produced from fat stores uh, via end endogenous ketosis or your last meal, which would be exogenous ketosis. In fact, it's more likely they're coming from the meal you just ate if you measure any significant amount of ketones. Uh, so if you worry about your ketone numbers, it's important to ask yourself what your real goal is. Is it really some number on a stick? If so, just eat more butter and less protein and carbs. But if your real goal is perhaps fat loss or mental clarity or enhanced energy or general health and well-being, you know, if this is the case, that ketone number just may not be telling you all that much, okay? Now, we need to talk about hormones, and specifically two very important hormones, and that is insulin and glucagon. These are the two main drivers of gluconeogenesis, as well as ketogenesis, uh, insulin and glucagon. It's the ratio and interplay of these two hormones that determine energy utilization and storage. So for example, if you have low insulin and high glucagon, that's the recipe to enter nutritional ketosis. And each macronutrient has a specific effect on these hormones. Uh, for example, carbohydrates increase insulin and they decrease glucagon. Protein increases, increases both insulin and glucagon, while fat increases glucagon and doesn't impact insulin too much. Okay, so let's talk about insulin to glucagon ratios. So if you have a high insulin to glucagon ratio, which means insulin is predominant and thus the body is in an anabolic state, which is a state of building and storing. I'm going to talk more about anabolic versus catabolic states here in a minute. Uh, but when this is high, like the standard American diet has an insulin to glucagon ratio of about four. This means glycogenesis and lipogenesis, storing fat and storing uh, glycogen and storing fat. Those are the predominant mechanisms. Uh, and so we're constantly in a state of storing energy if you're on the standard American diet with an IG ratio of four. Now, this ratio also leads to what you would probably predict, the inhibition of autophagy and ketogenesis. Interestingly, in this high ratio state, if you eat more protein on top of that, it tends to further increase the ratio in the anabolic direction, okay? But low insulin to glucagon ratio. If you have a low Ig ratio, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Ig ratio declines when you need gluconeogenesis, okay? So when the Ig ratio is low, it means glucagon is predominant, and thus the body is in a catabolic state, which is a state of energy mobilization. This state mimics the fasted state where we see increases in insulin sensitivity, autophagy, mitophagy, lipolysis, and bad activation. Uh, so in a low ratio state, like a low carb, which would be less than like 1.5, more protein does not increase the ratio, but rather the ratio stays about the same. And the reason is that insulin rises to move amino acids into cells, but insulin is non-selective, which means it's also going to escort glucose from the blood into cells too. And the body has to replace this blood glucose. And if you're not eating much carbohydrate, the body does this by secreting glucagon, which is going to signal to the liver to release glucose to restore that blood uh, to restore blood glucose levels. Hopefully that makes some sense. Uh, and then this glucagon further stimulates lipolysis, which liberates fat stores and ketogenesis, which is the creation of ketones. Okay, so a word on red meat and ketones, because uh, I think it's worth noting that carnitine is especially important in its role in escorting fat into the mitochondria for oxidation. So basically, if you have this formula, low insulin to glucagon ratio, where fat and you know fat and protein, especially red meat, plus carnitine from red meat, 
gives you ketones, okay? So that's kind of like a ketone formula. Now, a word on cortisol. So a final point to discuss is cortisol's role in gluconeogenesis because there's this common fear around eating a high-protein diet in that it stimulates gluconeogenesis, which requires cortisol, and then chronically elevated cortisol, which is a stressor, uh, is you know long-term damaging, right? So basically, the, the thought process is like, if you have a high-protein diet, low-carb diet, you're going to have a lot of gluconeogenesis, which is going to cause a lot of cortisol, which is going to cause a lot of stress and damage. Uh, but besides the fact that we just learned that a high-protein diet doesn't increase the rate of gluconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis doesn't require elevated cortisol anyways. So when blood sugar drops, let's say below about 65 milligrams per deciliter, glucagon is released, which causes the liver to release stored glycogen as glucose into the blood. This happens before blood sugar gets low enough to trigger elevations in of cortisol, okay? So this is basically all you have to know about this. The blood glucose threshold for glucagon production is about 65 milligrams per deciliter. The blood glucose threshold for cortisol elevation is about 55 milligrams per deciliter. So the body doesn't want to allow hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. It's a dangerous state. One safety measure you know, it has to prevent this is cortisol. If the blood sugar gets really low, below 55 milligrams per deciliter, the body releases cortisol, which has a function of liberating glucose into the blood. It's part of the sympathetic response, the fight or flight, that arms the body with necessary energy in emergencies. So uh, the blood glucose threshold for cortisol produc production is 55 milligrams per deciliter, a level which is below that of which glucagon would have already been released to increase blood glucose levels. Okay, so let's just wrap this gluconeogenesis up. Okay, there is a substantial amount of evidence that protein does not increase the rate of gluconeogenesis and that the insulin to glucagon ratio controls glucose production and ketogenesis. And this ratio doesn't change much in low no-carb dieters with variable amounts of protein consumption. Uh, there is no evidence that consuming excess protein will increase glucose production from gluconeogenesis, yet there is much evidence that suggests it does not. And there are compelling arguments that protein does increase glucose, glucose oxidation in no to low carb dieters, which can decrease ketone production, which is often a non-issue with respect to most people's health objectives. So at the end of the day, the fear around eating too much protein because of gluconeogenesis is unfounded in most cases. Besides specific medical conditions that call for certain depths of nutritional ketosis or people who just feel or do better at certain levels, restricting protein often isn't the solution. In fact, as we'll unpack, the opposite is often the strategy to achieve achieving the desired health outcomes. Okay, that is gluconeogenesis. We got the complex, you know, the, the scientific jargon out of the way. We're going to get a lot, lot more practical here as we go. Okay, so the second major fear around high-protein diets is it's going to cause gout. How many times have you heard that, right? Too much meat's going to give you gout. Uh, and anyone that has ever suffered from gout is going to tell you that this fear is justified. I heard someone describe gout as stepping on broken glass and trying to ease the pain with a blowtorch. Like it's just excruciating. Uh, so gout results from an abnormal accumulation of uric acid in the blood, which crystallizes in the joints, classically the big toe. A major source of uric acid comes from the metabolism of purines. And since meat is high in purines, you know, the often heard recommendation for gout is avoid meat, right? Meat has purines, purines get metabolized to uric acid, uric acid, you know, goes to gout. But there is a problem with this logical train of thought. Over 90% of elevated uric acid is from impaired 
clearance, not the overproduction of uric acid. So it's the kidney's job to filter out uric acid out of the blood, but elevated insulin impairs the kidney's ability to do this. So evidence suggests that most cases of gout are a result of metabolic dysregulation, like hyperinsulinemia, as three out of four people with gout have metabolic syndrome. So one of the recommendations when you have gout is to go on a low purine diet, right? But if you look at what a low purine diet is, these are mostly carbohydrate-based foods, cereals, breads, pasta, flour, sugar, fruit, and these stimulate insulin far greater than the purine-rich food meat, right? And just as low cholesterol diets have a trivial effect on serum cholesterol and low salt diets have an insignificant effect on blood pressure, low purine diets have a negligible impact on uric acid levels. So gout is this relatively new disease. It's increased 5x since modern dietary recommendations. It was unknown in the Inuit and Northern Indians uh, despite their purine-rich diets. And research done on the well-known Atkins diet, you know, very meat-heavy purine-rich diet, showed dramatic decreases in serum uric acid despite its substantial purine content. So I think perhaps we pointed our fingers at the wrong food group as a culprit for gout, okay? There are, there's a special connection with gout with fructose and alcohol. So I want to talk about those two things in particular. If we examine fructose, we can get a better picture of gout overall. Fructose accelerates the breakdown of ATP, which produces adenosine, a form of adenine, which is a purine. This stimulates the synthesis of purines directly. So further exacerbating the situation, the metabolism of fructose creates lactic acid, which reduces uric acid excretion. So if you combine this with elevated insulin, you get high levels of uric acid in the blood and impaired clearance, which is just a recipe for gout. Alcohol, like fructose, burns through ATP. So if you burn through ATP, you create purines, which go to uric acid. And if you drink until intoxication, you can double uric acid levels, even though alcohol contains no purines. So rather, purines are produced via the metabolism of the ATP, and clearance is impaired because alcohol interferes with the kidney's ability to excrete them. Uh, so I've had countless people, especially uh, this this new, one of my newsletter readers in particular, who sent me this message. He said, "Hi, Doc. Just to, just a note to tell you, I suffered from chronic gout for five years. It got to the stage that I started doubting if life was worth it. My daily pill intake was about four to five. Uh, medications and about the same number of you know ibuprofen and other painkillers plus a gout pack plus a mixture of nine different pills so basically he was taking like 20 pills Uh, he said this was the norm for as long as I could remember my brother-in-law told me about the meat health website and the next day I started with the 30-day guide so far I've lost 25 pounds I feel a lot better and most importantly I've had no gout this is a life changer for me and like I said I've received numerous messages like this one it seems to be the rule not the exception but it's worth noting that in the early stages of transition transitioning to a meat-based diet a purine rich diet gout can flare up ketones can compete with uric acid for excretion and for some people this is can cause a temporary accumulation of uric acid until the body becomes more efficient at using ketones so adapting to ketone utilization and accompanying drops in insulin uric acid excretion often returns to normal and gout tends to resolve uh, but just a heads up So in conclusion with gout, it's not the consumption of dietary purines like meat that results in gout. Rather, it's the buildup of uric acid as a result of elevated insulin that impairs the kidney's ability to excrete it. This is exacerbated by fructose and alcohol consumption. Uh, So I think the current dietary recommendations for gout seriously need reconsideration. 
Okay, let's go to fear number three, and that is high protein diets and it's and it's hard on the kidneys, right? Because uh, we're just talking about the kidneys, so let's just talk about high high protein diets and its role on the kidneys. Because a lot of people say, you know, won't all that protein just ruin your kidneys? Uh, and the argument that protein strains the kidneys comes from this train of thought. Protein contains nitrogen, and the kidneys filter out nitrogenous waste like creatinine and urea. And thus, the more protein you eat, the more strain on the kidneys, right? Well, that's a train of thought. Uh, and while this is perhaps a logical train of thought, we really need to look at the data and what's actually happening. So kidney failure has doubled since the, since the 1970s, yet protein consumption has been fairly con- consistent. Uh, the number one cause of kidney failure guess what? It's diabetes. It's responsible for 44% of cases of kidney failure. The number two cause of of kidney disease is hypertension, which almost 30%. So over 70% of chronic kidney disease could be controlled via blood sugar and blood pressure control. This is a carbohydrate issue. This is not a protein issue. Uh, So the reason uh, this happens is because chronic high blood sugar, insulin, and blood pressure damage the small blood vessels. They're called the glomerulus. It's hard to say a word. Glomerulus. Glomerulus. The glomerulus. It's these very small blood vessels that feed the kidneys. And this microvascular disease causes kidney kidney failure. Uh, So if you go on a high-protein diet, you may see changes in renal function. However, elevations in BUN, which is blood urea nitrogen, or creatinine doesn't necessarily indicate a problem. It often just reflects that you're eating more protein than the standard American diet. Okay, The changes in kidney function as a result of a high-protein diet are expected, and it's normal. There are adaptive mechanisms that are just well within the functional duties of the kidneys. So to put it simply, high-protein diets, they don't cause kidney damage. Okay, And along with this is this myth of creatine. Uh, there's For a long time, there was concern that creatine supplementation would damage the kidneys. Because creatine, which is high in red meat, it's more than 90% stored in muscles. Uh, And so the more muscle you have, the more creatinine you'll produce. And so a high animal protein diet or creatine supplementation combined with a good amount of muscle mass can elevate creatinine compared to the standard American diet, which can falsely be interpreted as kidney damage. So if you're concerned about a high protein diet uh, and kidney health, instead of just Looking at creatinine alone, which can be falsely elevated due to muscle mass and protein consumption, get a C-statin C-GFR test, which removes protein as a confounding variable. Okay, so if you're interested in that test, it's linked up on in the article itself. Further, not only does evidence not support high-protein diets causing kidney disease, but much research has shown that protein restriction has largely been unsuccessful in slowing the pro- progression of pre-existing chronic kidney disease. According to Stuart Phillips, who is a you know a lead professor, prominent protein researcher, maybe the you know the utmost world expert, uh, said it's a concept that's been around for at least 50 years, and you hear it all the time. Higher protein diets cause kidney disease. The fact is, however, that there's no evidence to support this hypothesis. In fact, in fact, the evidence shows that the contrary is true. Higher protein increases, not decreases, kidney function. Okay, so to conclude, I mean, the surest path to kidney disease is a high-sugar, high-carb diet that induces chronic elevations in in blood sugar, insulin, and blood pressure. Uh, Another route is inducing oxalate-based nephritis via a heavy oxalate plant-based diet. And so while protein has been a good scapegoat for kidney disease, it's simply not a dependable way if you want to induce kidney damage. All right, so 
Fear number four, high protein diets and bone health. Uh, so isn't meat acidic? Isn't it gonna leach calcium from your bones? This is like the next fear, maybe one of the most common you'll hear. Uh, people worry that a high protein diet and meat is just really acidic. And the hypothesis, hypothesis goes something like this. So amino acids, acids from protein, increase acidity in the blood. Therefore, to balance the pH, the body leaches calcium and other alkaline compounds from the bones. Worse, if you're eating an all-meat diet without dairy, which seems to be quite low in calcium, and you're eating a high-protein diet, uh, it's common to see, which, and it's, where it's common to see an increase in the amount of calcium excreted in the urine, there's this fear that the acid, which is derived from the protein in meat, causes calcium to be leached, leached from the bones to balance the pH, and then this calcium is urinated out. Okay, so basically, low calcium plus a high-acid meat diet equals to osteoporosis, right? Well, there's a few problems with this train of thought. And the first problem is that dietary protein improves gut absorption of calcium. And research shows between 300 to 400%. And according to research, dietary protein works synergistically with calcium to improve calcium retention and bone metabolism. So there's much research that shows the positive effect of dietary protein on bone mineral density and further suggests that low, not high protein, is detrimental for bone health. One of many reasons I'd caution against a low-protein diet is the reduction in intestinal calcium absorption, which can lead to hyperparathyroidism. So in this situation, the parathyroid secretes hormone that increases osteoclast activity, which breaks down bone tissue to release calcium. And simply eating lots of calcium in dairy doesn't solve the problem. There's a lack of evidence that shows that dairy or calcium supplements strengthen bones or protect you from osteoporosis. Like, for example, Americans eat more dairy than almost any country, and we have some of the highest rates of osteoporosis. <clears throat> so the connection between high protein intake and bone health is common knowledge in anthropology. Anthropologists distinguish the remains of hunter-gatherers from agriculturists by examining the bones. High protein eating hunter-gatherers have larger, stronger, denser bones. So perhaps one of the most important considerations in bone health is muscle mass. Protein is critically important to maintaining muscle mass, especially as we age. The more muscle, more muscle mass is associated with stronger bones and a decreased risk of osteoporosis. It's as simple as that. Uh, so the last important thing to mention here in the meat is acidic argument is that grains have an acid residue too. Oats and brown rice have a higher acid potential than most meats. Further, they don't aid with calcium absorption, rather contain anti-nutrients like phytic acid and oxalates that can interfere with calcium absorption. So to conclude this meat, acid, calcium, and bone health discussion, uh, we can see what when researchers look to see if high-protein diets increase the risk of bone fractures. Not only do they not find a correlation, rather they find protein intake is positively associated with bone mineral density. And worth mentioning here, I don't think supplemental calcium is necessary on a meat-based diet. In fact, I would worry if someone were supplementing calcium on a meat-based diet as it could lead to hypercal, you know, too much calcium and renal stones. Uh, so basically, if you want strong bones, don't skimp, skimp on the meat and the protein. All right, fear number five, high-protein diets and longevity. So... There is a theory that protein restriction can increase longevity. Longevity. It's based on the idea that less protein will improve the stability of metabolic networks. So basically the idea is this. 
Too much protein will lead to an accumulation of damage over time, oxidative stress, which leads to aging. And since some research shows that protein restriction can reduce levels of oxidative damage, we have this protein restriction longevity hypothesis. Okay, there's some there's some problems with this. The first is most of this research in this field is done on mice. And one trait of quite a few traits that distinguish mice from men is that mice have seven times the metabolic rate of humans. Thus, they have far greater levels of oxidative stress. So with this in mind, it makes sense that mice respond favorably to interventions that reduce oxidative stress. So extrapolating longevity research that has been done on mice to predict human outcomes is inherently flawed. I mean, mice live about two years. Humans live about 80. So if you combine this fact with the difference in metabolism, drawing any meaningful results is difficult, if not just impossible. Moreover, proponents of protein restriction based on this limited research are the same people that tend to also be proponents of fasting, which is hypocritical if you think that if you consider the fact that if you if a mouse fasts for 24 hours, it loses 20% of its body weight. If a mouse fasts for five days, it's dead. Okay, so you know, kind of a hypocritical thing <laughs> if you consider that, you know, re- that, that relation. Uh, but what about IGF-1 and mTOR? Uh, both of these are associated with cancer and age-related diseases. And I think it's super important here there to talk about these two opposing forces or states that I think are greatly misunderstood. And that is the anabolic state and the catabolic state. So anabolism is the state of growth. It's a state of building and storing. It's a state of energy abundance. It's associated with muscle growth as well as fat storage. And it's also associated with mTOR, you know, increases, insulin, and IGF-1. All things that we used to call, you know, basically consider bad, right? Now, catabolism is the state of liberating stored energy, breaking down and clearing out. It's a state of energy deficit. It's associated with starvation, or more commonly, fasting, and initiating processes like ketogenesis and autophagy. These are all things that we, I mean, likely today you think of as good things. And for much of my adult life, I focused on, I'm sorry, for much of my early adult life, I focused on the anabolic factors, like purposefully stimulating mTOR and IGF-1 and the strategic spiking of insulin post-workout. These were processes that enabled me to build muscle and the body that I wanted. Later on in life, I started drinking the catabolism Kool-Aid. I did regular fasting. I measured ketones, you know, in the hope of finding this holy grail of health. But what I've come to believe is that balancing these states is the key. Uh, So let's look at balancing this balancing act in the context of longevity, okay? So in any discussion on longevity, it's imperative to discuss muscle. Muscle mass, independent of fat mass and cardiovascular uh, and metabolic risk factors is inversely associated with mortality risk. Uh, in much research, uh, it suggests anabolic processes that promote muscle building, like IGF-1, like mTOR, are associated with longer survival. Simply put, muscle mass is one of the biggest predictors of longevity. But we can also look at this from the other vantage point, okay? The catabolic state and muscle wasting. So decreases in muscle mass as we age is one of the highest predictors of all-cause mortality. It goes hand-in-hand with what we just talked about. And the reason why is that it leads to sarcopenia, which is the impairment of physical function from loss of muscle mass. Sarcopenia increases the risk for disability, nursing home placement, fractures, falls, hospitalizations, reduced quality of life, and premature death. Older adults require more protein to offset sarcopenia, frailty, and associated morbidities. 
as the renowned Dr. Peter Adias says, I think the most important thing to consider as a macro principle of longevity is that the longer you can preserve muscle mass, the better. But like I mentioned, I think the key is a balance between these forces. The modern diet is heavily skewed in the anabolic state. You know, if we go back and look at the IG ratio of the standard American diet, it's four. It's very heavily anabolic. We eat continuously. Three meals, snacks in between, desserts after, and most of this food is not protein. It's plant-based carbohydrates and fats, foods that highly stimulate the anabolic pathway, insulin, IMTOR, etc. But not only are we continuously stimulating anabolism, these foods combined with a lack of exercise and muscle stimulation equal fat storage, not muscle building. So we aren't even getting the benefits of anabolism, only the detriments of it, which are the continual fat storage and accumulation uh, and subsequent metabolic dysregulation. It's why I think we see such positive results from studying catabolic processes like fat loss, like fasting, like autophagy. It swings this balance back in the other direction. With the standard American diet that it always has us in the anabolic state, it makes sense that we see such high rates of obesity and diabetes. And I can't help but think many cancers, which are typified by uncontrolled cellular growth, are related to this continuous anabolic stimulation. But thinking that fasting is the answer to the fountain of youth, I believe is misguided. While the benefits of autophagy and clearing out waste seem obvious enough, so should the idea that this catabolic process is breaking down tissues, cells, and molecules. Now, if you skew too far in the breakdown direction, I don't think you're going to find a robust, healthy body at the end of that road. Instead, I think you're going to find frailty, aging, and graying. It's a picture that I see very commonly with people who have practiced strict veganism or prolonged prolonged fasting. So both anabolic and catabolic states have beneficial and detrimental effects. Anabolism builds muscle, but it also will store nearly unlimited amounts of fat. Catabolism clears out waste via autophagy, but it can also waste away muscle. Now, over-tipping the scale in either direction can have adverse effects. Too much anabolism and you end up obese with metabolic syndrome. Too much catabolism, you end up wasting away with sarcopenia. The key is balancing the beneficial aspects of anabolism and catabolism. But modern society tips the scales in the worst direction of both of these processes. In the anabolic state, we layer on excess fat, not muscle. In the catabolic state, we waste away muscle instead of clearing out waste. We're fat and weak. I think most people's goal should be to optimize the anabolic pathway for lifelong muscle building and maintenance and balance this with catabolic processes like some fasting or fasting mimicking via ketosis or low carbohydrate intake. As I mentioned in a previous article and even podcast that I've done, uh, there are numerous factors that go into living a long life. And one of those factors is undoubtedly diet. And the evidence, evidence suggests the more meat you eat and thus protein, the longer you live. Like if we look at telomeres, when studying longevity, it's a, it's a, a lot of people will start with telomeres because telomeres affect cell lifespan. The longer the, telom- the, longer the te- telomere, the longer a cell will live. Now, there was a study done on red meat that found an unexpected relationship between the frequency of red meat consumption and telomere length. More so than exercise or any other factor, red meat consumption correlated with longer telomeres. Uh, But let's ask the question, do longer telomeres really result in longer life? Well, we can't really isolate pure meat eaters today. We're getting closer because there's a a big gang of us all, you know, (laughs) growing at at an exponential rate. Uh, But if we want to look at like the the most heavy meat eaters, we got to look at Hong Kong. Uh, they eat about one and pa- one and a half pounds of meat a day per person, uh, the most in the world. And it turns out they have the longest life expectancy in the world. 
And Japan also recently hit an all-time high in life expectancy in tandem with their highest meat-eating rates. Australian men eat more meat than almost anyone, and they top the world's men in longevity. Uh, On the small island of Iceland, they have more centarians per capita than almost anywhere in the world. Living in the tundra is not conducive to plant-based foods, so their traditional diet has always been predominantly meat-based. So on the flip side, if we look at India, they eat about the least amount of meat in the world. They also have one of the shortest life expectancies, as well as the highest rates of diabetes and depression in the world. Yet the women in India who eat meat five times per week are less likely to suffer from obesity, heart disease, and cancer while having lower rates of insulin resistance and inflammation than the non-meat eaters. Uh, and, and this data is consistent with FAO, showing as meat eating increases, so does life expectancy. And all this is epidemiology, which comes laced with flaws and limitations. But it doesn't mean we should just ignore these findings, especially because they're in stark contrast to the popular claims of plant-based diets offering longevity benefits, which they don't. And in fact, research is showing red meat intake to be inversely associated with cardiovascular disease and with cancer, two of the leading causes of death. So the short lifespans found in India are consistent with the findings in vegans who typically eat a low-protein diet. There was a massive study conducted at Oxford that compared all-cause mortality among regular meat-eaters and vegans. And although these were not pure meat-eaters or even meat-based eaters, they ate other junk too, they still had a 14% decrease in relative risk of death compared to the vegans. So in conclusion, the research in support of protein restriction for longevity is weak, and it has to be contrasted with the known detriments of a low-protein diet like sarcopenia and resulting frailty, reduced quality of life, and premature death. So beyond just protein, meat seems especially important in promoting longevity. And while many factors go into longevity, some of which are out of our control, I can't end this section without some tips that I do think help move the needle in the direction of living a long life. And one is, don't eat foods that didn't exist 100 years ago, perhaps 10,000 years ago. So that would be, 10,000 years ago would be the agricultural revolution. And if you're interested in knowing what they ate, you know, I've got lots of articles. And even on this podcast, you can find more about, you know, what did humans eat more than 10,000 years ago? You know, what was our real ancestral diet like? So rule number one for living a long life, don't eat foods that didn't exist 100 years ago or even better, 10,000 years ago. Rule number two, work out. Build and maintain muscle mass as you age. Rule three, prioritize sleep. Try and get seven to eight hours of sleep a night. I have a podcast on sleep specifically. Uh, Sleep is super important for longevity. Four, contrary to everything you're going to hear, get some sun. I'm talking about like get it on your skin, right? Uh, Not layered with, you know, big hats and large clothing, okay? Get sun exposure. Uh, and then the last thing is emotional health. Uh, whatever you can do to reduce stress, you know, something like transcendental meditation has actually clinical research to show how effective it is, uh, is one, one thing you can do. Uh, cultivating social connections, finding a sense of purpose and meaning to life. These are all, these move the needle in terms of living a long life, being happy, okay? Now, let's get to the the sixth and last issue about high-protein diets. And this one is more uh, carnivore-based. And the question is, what about a carnivore diet and out-of-balanced amino acids? Should I supplement? And as we're going to get to in part two here shortly, you don't need the same amount of of each amino acid, okay? Branch-chain amino acids, they account for about half of your essential amino acids, okay, that you need, that are the requirements. You need nearly 10 times more leucine than tryptophan, for example. But a common concern among those on high-protein diets, you know, carnivore or heavy meat-based eaters, is not if they're getting enough protein 
or all the amino acids, but rather if they're getting too much of certain amino acids. So if you eat a lot of muscle meat, you consume a good amount of methionine, which as the name suggests is responsible for methylation. Glycine provides a buffer to this methylation. If unbuffered, hypothetically, it could cause issues with collagen synthesis and also hypothetically methionine restriction could uh, increase lifespan. But the first point to make here is one that we literally just made. Like the longevity research, we literally just talked about the studies on methionine uh, and methionine restriction have been done on mice. And as the researchers say themselves, this simply can't be extrapolated to humans. I'll quote them. The duration and severity of the dietary restriction regimen that achieves maximum longevity may not be feasible outside of lab settings. In humans, dietary restriction may be associated with severe side effects and elevated risk of malnutrition, especially with regard to protein and micronutrient requirements. Although analyses of the of those practicing calorie restriction showed that humans ex- exhibit some of the same molecular and metabolic signatures observed in long-lived calorically restricted rodents, currently it is impractical to directly apply caloric restriction to increase longevity and reduce the risk of age-associated diseases in humans, period. Okay, the second issue is that when you stop eating so many carbs and so much sugar, a lot of things change. For example, glucose can compete with vitamin C for for absorption. So with less sugar in the diet, less vitamin C may be necessary as well. Similarly, research has shown that glucose and galactose impair the absorption of glycine. And thus, with a low-carb, no-carb diet, you can see increases in the amount absorption and in absorption of glycine. And this is perhaps why we see some beneficial outcomes when people with metabolic disorders, such as cardiovascular diseases, inflammatory diseases, obesity, cancers, diabetes, when they're given glycine supplementation, we, we see improvements. And that's likely because they're deficient in glycine because they have impaired absorption due to chronically elevated sugar levels, Okay. The third point is evidenced by looking at the numbers, simply looking uh, uh, you know, at a chart that shows how much methionine and glycine is in various cuts of meat. We can see that the amino acid composition uh, of, of muscle meat even has more glycine than methionine. Okay? And then the final fourth point is glycine is not an essential amino acid. It's synthesized from choline, serine, hydroxyproline, and threonine. But in certain circumstances, certain, you know, like metabolic dysfunction, the body can't make as much as it needs. And therefore, it becomes what's called a conditionally essential amino acid. We'll talk more about that in in part two here. Uh, But not only does a meat-based diet provide plenty of glycine, it also gives the body ample building blocks to synthesize glycine all on its own. Uh, So I have a diagram on the website, if you want to check it out, that paints a useful picture of protein amino amino acid balancing via dietary intake, you know, how how we get amino acids in, how we lose amino acids, and then how we recycle amino acids. So when we eat amino acids with a meat-based diet, you consume all the amino acids in plentiful quality to perform all essential roles. Uh, When you lose amino acids, we can lose it through, you know, various mechanisms, oxidation, you lose it through your intestinal loss, uh, through sweat, urinary excretion, uh, synthesis of other amino acids, irreversible modifications, synthesis of non-protein substrates. So we can lose amino acids in a lot of ways, but we can also recycle amino acids. And so the body has a remarkable ability to recycle proteins in their amino acids. It's a fine-tuned checks and balances machine. And I'm not saying that these balances can't be thrown off. They surely can, as we see in metabolic disorders, but it's unlikely that if you're 
going that it's it's unlikely you're going to overeat a single amino acid if you're eating whole food right meat uh perhaps supplementation of mega doses of individual amino acids could cause problems but worrying about a methionine glycine ratio probably isn't worth the stress and if you are stressed about it it's not too difficult to increase your glycine tint intake by eating connective tissues like tendons collagen or bone broth or you can simply supplement with some hydro hydro uh, hydro hydro hydrolyzed collagen, sorry, or pure glycine. The potential risk associated with glycine supplementation are small and the upside of ease of mind could easily be worth it. And if you are really stressed about it, which is probably causing more damage than anything, uh, you can test for adequacy of glycine uh, via a a number of tests like glutathione, serum glycine levels, uh, and I got those tests listed on the website. So now we're getting to part two, which we're gonna talk much more about amino acids, quantities, essential versus conditionally essential, how much protein you should eat, body composition, and more. All right, so we got through the fears. Let's get into the good stuff. All right, so let's dive into the most essential macronutrient. This is part two. So hopefully we put the fears to rest about eating too much protein, but we do need to look at the other side of the coin, and that is fears of inadequate protein, which I do think are much more justified. So pragmatically, protein can be considered the only macronutrient that you really have to worry about. So the human carbohydrate requirement is zero. Fiber requirement, zero. The, body's gonna, the body can make all the glucose it needs. You can go the rest of your life without eating any carbohydrates. Uh, and there are essential fatty acid requirements, meaning we have to eat certain fats, but the minimum needed for survival is very low. And of course, this is not to say that you know low fat is optimal or anything like that but the the amount of the two essential fatty acids that we have to eat linoleic acid and alpha linoleic acid which are omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids uh they can't be made by the body but they're so abundant and so easily easily obtained that it's quite difficult to develop a deficiency like to put this in perspective to cause a fatty acid deficiency you'd have to eat Uh, about a purified zero-fat diet for weeks, if not months, before the first signs of a deficiency would even show up. Uh, But the requirement for protein is substantially greater, uh, and the consequences of protein malnutrition are severe. So carbs and fat are made of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, uh, and so is protein. But protein also requires nitrogen. Uh, So the body can make carbohydrates from proteins, uh, and the body can make fats from from almost anything, uh, but it's not true with protein. Uh, so uh, further, you know, as we learned, excess protein isn't stored in any appreciable way. So if you combine these factors, like uh, our large essential amino acid requirements, uh, you can start to see why protein is pragmatically the most essential macronutrient. You need to eat enough. You need to eat it regularly. Otherwise, you start to eat into muscle and tissues and impair vital functions. So let's talk a little bit more about protein malnutrition. Uh, So I think people should be concerned about inadequate protein intake. Besides muscle loss and sarcopenia, which we've touched on a bit here and we're going to touch on a bit more, uh, inadequate protein can stunt growth, reduce immune function, increase susceptibility to infection, and cause psychological and behavioral changes. Things like, you know, irritability, ADD, anxiety, apathy, depression. These are all linked strongly with protein malnutrition. So if you're getting inadequate essential 
uh, amino acids. It puts you at risk for you know lethargy, weakness, muscle wasting, impaired healing. I mean, the list can go on and on. You know, accelerated aging, bone loss, hair loss. You know, heart problems, hormone imbalances, mood disorders. You know, a weakened immune system, as I mentioned, and it can even be fatal. Uh, and I mean, there's extremely sad examples of this that you can see in less developed areas of the world. You may have seen examples of what, you know, they're called sugar babies uh, and they have distended abilities, stunted growth, apathy, list- listlessness uh, and high rates of infection all from, you know, protein malnutrition. So there's this idea of a protein floor, a bare minimum, and if the body doesn't get it, it's going to respond by doing whatever it can to get it, get to that. So I want to talk more about that and what's called the protein leverage hypothesis, okay? So the protein leverage hypothesis is research done by a couple of researchers, uh, and I'm just going to refer to them as RNS in this because uh, uh, their name's David and Steven. Uh, Robinheimer and Simpson. So that's why I call them RNS just for short. Uh, so anyways, in 2005, they pr- pr- proposed this novel solution to the obesity epidemic and related metabolic diseases like diabetes, cancers, heart disease. And they said the key to the obesity and modern metabolic disease epidemics is protein leverage. It's a term they coined as the remedy for the diseases of modern civilization. And in essence, they argued that Protein is the underlying factor that determine how much we eat. If you eat enough protein, you're not going to overeat. If you aren't eating enough protein, instinctively, you will overeat in an effort to compensate. This hypothesis is based on the fact that many species regulate food intake by how much protein they need to maximize health and reproduction. So leverage, quote unquote leverage, as used by RNS, is a term used to explain the fact that small changes in protein availability, the amount of protein that you eat, can trigger large changes in animal behavior. And yes, human animal humans are animals, so it's large changes in human behavior as well. Uh, so, I mean, this is a great example of why portion control fails. The argument is that the only reason you would need portion control is if you would naturally overeat, right? But RNS, you know, the researchers suggest this isn't the case. Rather, the reason you overeat is because you aren't getting enough protein. Thus, shrinking your serving sizes via portion control would only make matters worse as you'd be shrinking your serving of protein as well, which is already too small. So the researchers say that you don't need to shrink your portion size. You need to increase your portion of protein. So in their research, Arnas observed again and again that species in the wild can instinctively detect what they need for optimum health and fitness. But when their their optimal nutrition isn't available, a species will adapt and do what it can to find that nutrition. So for example, they will hold off on mating. They will shrink in size to save energy. Or, you know, they may pick up and move altogether as migratory animals do with the seasons. You know, for example, crickets, they're going to migrate to find protein. And during the migration, they will pass up on many possible sources of energy like grasses in search of protein. And they'll even starve to death. So, you know, a grass meal will be there, but they're going to choose starving to death as they search for protein because that's what they need. Uh, And when they do starve to death, the crickets will actually eat their traveling companions for the protein. So a couple other examples like fruit flies, they'll hold off on mating if they don't get enough protein. Birds will self-select diets to reach optimal protein, increasing it in times during growth. Uh, And birds bred with more muscle also self-select higher protein diets. Uh, But let's talk about humans, okay? So from RNS's research, they found that humans have a protein floor, kind of like a bare minimum, around 15% of their baseline homeostatic energy requirements. 
So according to the USDA figures, uh, the amount of protein that is available in the human food supply has actually decreased to about 12 12.5%, which makes humans as a whole protein deficient. And because the modern you know food supply is deficient in protein, people have to eat more of something else. They have to eat more calories to try and replace the lost protein. And to make up for this drop in protein, an average sized person needs to eat about 15% more calories. So unconsciously and instinctively, the body adapts and increases appetite if that protein floor is not being met. So protein deficiency leads to the consumption of a couple hundred extra calories every day, which correlates quite well with the calorie increase in the American diet since the 1970s. So in this regard, you know, RNS, the researchers, they argue that we act in a similar way to other species. Like primates, they reliably overeat foods high in carbs and fat in order to get enough protein. Rats, they overeat on low protein foods until they get enough protein. And after protein deprivation, they self-select higher protein food after that. So RNS found that even mild deficiencies in protein result in overconsumption to compensate, which when compounded day after day can result in drastic outcomes in the forms of obesity and the sequela of metabolic diseases that come from constant overfeeding. So the body seeks homeostasis. It balances everything from, you know, your temperature to your blood sugar to your energy usage and consumption, but it will disrupt homeostasis when a threat poses a greater risk than that imbalance. So such a situation arises with protein deficiency. So as far as the body is concerned, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, you know, the the consequences of overeating in order to get enough protein, that's preferable to protein starvation. So protein is absolutely critical to nearly every process and structure in your body. Protein starvation scares the body like nothing else. Like zero carbs, no big deal. Zero fat, no immediate big deal. Zero protein, that's imminent big deal. Inadequate protein, which is a negative nitrogen balance, it's going to waste away muscle, it's going to waste away organs, it's going to waste away reproductive ability. So with inadequate protein, the body literally has to eat itself to get the protein it needs. And to avoid this, the body responds by increasing appetite, urging you, really begging you to eat. Unfortunately, this signal is a little bit blunt. It doesn't specify protein necessarily. I mean, in the wild, for most of human evolution, protein was basically a foregone conclusion when you hunted down an animal. But with today's food choices, uh, it's quite the opposite. Instead of hunting down an animal, we're going to open the pantry or the fridge and respond to this urge by eating mostly carbs and fats. And we will eat over and beyond our homeostatic energy requirements in search of protein. So kind of to to sum up RNS's protein leverage hypothesis, it's this. With our current food supply, we must overeat. And to handle this excess of calories, we store more and more as fat. Obesity and diabetes are the result of necessary overconsumption by the body seeking adequate nutrition from protein. So while I am a big fan of the work, you know, the researchers RNS did, uh, I do think the protein leverage hypothesis tells part of the story, but I don't think it tells the whole thing. Because look, I'm confident that if I ate adequate protein over and beyond my protein floor and then filled in the rest with, you know, donuts, I'd be in trouble. Just because I, just because I was getting enough protein, you know, I don't think I could fill in the rest of my, my diet with donuts. Or I do think I would get overweight and I think I would suffer the consequences of the metabolic dysregulation, you know, that would come from that. Uh, But I do think protein is a huge part of this story. But I do think 
carbohydrates play another part as well as some other things that we're going to get into. Let's talk about carbs here Uh, because not only does inadequate protein cause an increase in caloric consumption, if those calories are replaced with carbohydrate, the increase is even greater. So there've been a couple studies uh, done on obese kids and soda. And when these kids stopped drinking soda, their calorie intake dropped, but it didn't just drop by the amount of calories that were in the soda. It, it, it decreased, you know, the amount of calories they, they ate decreased beyond that, that, that were attributable to the soda. So not only does the soda supply additional calories, but those calories make you need to eat even more calories, if that makes sense. It's, it's a double whammy. Uh, so besides that, so carbohydrates can promote hunger via several mechanisms, and many are through the dysregulation of insulin. Uh, so insulin can interfere with something called leptin, which plays a key role in regulating energy intake and use, and can lead to something called leptin resistance. Uh, insulin resistance, you know, hyperinsulinemia results in chronically high insulin, preventing you from tapping into your fat stores for energy, which often results in a blood sugar, uh, roller coaster and hunger and carbohydrates can cause alterations in hepatic, in hepatic metabolism and central nervous system, uh, energy signaling, which leads to, you know, chronic overconsumption and carbohydrates also stimulate the hedonic pathway which is you know the pleasure ha- pathways uh which can cr- create habituation meaning like you need you need to eat them as part of like a habit basically it's an addiction uh so if you combine inadequate protein and the necessary carbohydrate consumption uh that you know follows you know the obesity epidemic becomes much less of a mystery so I think we need to talk a little bit about satiation. Okay, so protein. Is it the most satiating macronutrient? Uh, so much research, including that of RNS, points to this protein floor of around 15%. And research on satiety also highlights this. Because up until that 15% protein floor, protein is 100%, undeniably, and perhaps like unshockingly, the most satiating macronutrient. But, you know, once this baseline floor 15% threshold is met, protein superior appetite suppressing advantages do tend to gradually taper off. Uh, But this 15% is just an approximation for a bare minimum. For example, the amino acid content of that 15% is very important. For example, with plant-based proteins, the floor would necessarily increase because those proteins tend to be incomplete. Thus, they would up your total requirement above that 15% floor. And as we'll get to, like this 15% percent floor doesn't mean you should stop there okay uh but let's talk a little bit more about hunger because hunger and satiety are quite complex and hormones are the most important factors that determine if you feel full or if you feel like you need to go to the pantry you know and you know pull out another bag of whatever's in there (laughs) but there's a general rule of thumb that is more protein equals more appetite suppressing hormones so amino acids stimulate the release of several hormones that activate satiety centers in the brain and they also suppress the hunger hormone uh, more so than either fat or carbohydrates. And further, protein slows intestinal contractions to allow time to absorb the amino acids, which also increases uh, you know, the feeling of satiety uh, and duration of satiety. So I think one thing that's super telling is to see how closely the body monitors protein to ensure that we're getting enough. So the brain does a lot of things to make sure that we are getting all the amino acids we need. Uh, and so we'll talk about some of those things here. Because since we can't store amino acids like carbohydrates or in fat, the body needs mechanisms to make sure that we're consuming enough on a regular b- basis. 
So there's these things called LNAAs, large neutral amino acids, and they can cross the blood bit the, the blood-brain barrier and directly affect neurotransmitter levels with appetite suppressing effects in the brain. Uh, and you know, on the flip side, if you have an absence of LNAAs, they can leave those hunger signals active. That makes sense. So in the brain, we have a modulator called general control non-derep. It's actually called GCN2. It you know is most commonly known as general control non-derepressible two, which closely monitors amino acid balance. You know, further amino acids can affect the brain via stimulating mTOR anabolic signaling. Uh, it can suppress AMK, AMPK, which is catabolic signaling. Uh, and basically, all this goes through a cascade of hormones to, you know, are hunger signal, signals left on or are they turned off? And in addition to that, the brain also communicates with directly with your tongue. We have oral receptors in the mouth that can detect the presence or absence of amino acids in the diet. Uh, that which can signal the brain, hey, we need to eat more, or hey, we've had enough protein. So basically what I'm trying to say is we have a communication highway between our mouth, our brain, and our appetite. Uh, but appetite is impacted by more than just protein and more than just carbohydrates. For example, certain fats can increase hunger too. For example, vegetable oils, they're super high in linoleic acid, especially soybean oil, which is in everything. Uh, and they can trigger overeating via something called endocrine endocannabinoids uh if you've ever heard of the munchies you know that that's that's where they result from uh so they too have a hedonic component uh which stimulates dopamine and creates that habituation which is basically addiction uh so while macronutrients and overall energy consumption do play a huge role in appetite they're not the only factors either. So there's other factors such as food volume, food density, fiber, and even taste, not to mention psychological factors like stress eating. And all these play a huge role in influencing hunger and appetite. But I thought it was important to mention protein's role in hunger and appetite as well as that of fat and carbohydrates. Uh, all right. So let's. I, I want to take a look at this from a species perspective uh, evolutionary ancestral health kind of thing because I think the protein leverage hypothesis hints at an argument for high protein diets from this species uh, specific perspective uh, and I like to evaluate nutrition from various perspectives like one through like I say the microscope and you zoom in and you look at what's happening at the molecular level one is you zoom way way out and you look at hey Let's, what evolutionary what would make sense from an ancestral zoomed out perspective what makes sense from a species specific like we're all homo sapiens we're all the same species species tend to eat the same diet tend to have the same anatomical features that are designed to eat a certain kind of diet so if we zoom out uh you know what makes sense and so let's take a step back and imagine let's rewind the clock 100 years 10,000 years 200,000 years what would humans have had access to eat you know what does archaeology and paleontology hint at the human diet entailed throughout the ages what did our ancestors anatomy and physiology suggest that we ate so I like to look at this zoomed out perspective because I think our ancestors left us breadcrumbs which is an absolutely terrible analogy <laughs> but you know i think we look at our ancestors we can really get a, when we had probably a little bit stronger intuition of what we should eat intuition that we've largely lost for the most part uh you know what are humans designed to eat because it shouldn't really be that much rocket science right animals in the wild figure it out without any help uh so if we look before the agricultural revolution before the industrial revolution before the technological revolution 
you know, these revolutions transformed the human diet. Uh, and my guess is that, like I said, humans had better instincts into our natural diet before the, before these revolutions. Uh, because, like, like I said, species in the wild, they don't need a food pyramid to tell them what to eat. Most species are designed to eat a certain diet. And a species diet is in accord with their specific anatomical features, one that enable cows to graze on grass and gorillas to digest leaves. You know, without special features, it would be impossible to fuel their large bodies on seemingly nutrient-poor grass and leaves, right? Like, if a human eats just leaves or grass, we're dead, right? We don't have the special features that gorillas and cows have that enable them to transform, you know, that nutrient pour food into nutrient dense, you know, basically short chain fatty acids is what they do. They ferment fiber into fat. Really, they're on super high fat diets, but you know, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting on a tangent. Let's get back on track here. Um, so I've talked about this. I've talked about this anatomical and evolutionary perspective nutrition in a bunch of articles and podcasts. So I mean, I, I'm not going to go too far in, in depth here. Let's just kind of summarize it from a, you know, an overarching view. Prior to the agricultural revolution, humans ate a whole lot of meat. Meat was a selective advantage that developed our, you know, relatively absurdly huge brains that is, you know, relative to body size, no other animal comes close. Uh, It transformed our gut anatomy and underpinned our divergence from our primate ancestors. And if we look at isotope studies of fossils, we can see that humans, you know, 50,000 years ago ate a diet that was pretty much indistinguishable from a, like a carnivore diet. Uh, and prior to the agricultural revolution, which was about 10,000 years ago, modern humans ate a diet where, you know, 30 plus percent of calories from protein would have been the rule, not the exception. And while I've discussed and argued for the obviousness of a meat-based diet from an ancestral perspective, the protein leverage hypothesis, I think, is another piece of evidence in the case for humans eating a high-protein meat-based diet. Okay, let's talk about, you know, the thing that I'm not going to say everyone, but a lot of people, maybe even most people, are, are highly concerned about when it comes to their diet and what they're eating, and that's body composition. The number one reason people start a new way of eating is to lose fat. That's the number one re- reason why. Uh, more specifically, though, uh, to improve body composition. That's really what they want. But this isn't just necessarily a vanity goal. Improving body composition, you know, fat loss and muscle building is strongly correlated with improving most of the chronic diseases of modern modernization. So before diving into how much protein to eat to improve body composition, I think it's important to understand the two sides of the body composition equation, fat loss and muscle building. Because fat loss is a primary health objective for most people. And like I would say, it probably should be. Over 70% of the United States adults are overweight or obese which is evidence of a metabolic state that is complicit in most of the chronic diseases today. And to combat, to combat this and achieve this primary health objective, it's necessary to understand the importance of maintaining or even building muscle during fat loss. Muscle's role in fat loss is easily the most overlooked aspect to fat loss success. So a special note here, uh, because I'm going to talk about calories. The typical caloric model of fat loss is flawed or I would say misunderstood in many ways. For example, we know different foods affect hormones in different ways which play significant roles in determining you know, fat loss. But I use this basic terminology like caloric deficit or caloric surplus to help clarify the overarching ideas in this section, okay? So I don't want you to get caught up in calories, but I do just for the sake of fat loss and muscle building, it's necessary to talk about them because calories are important, okay? So while in an overall energy deficit required for fat storage mobilization, 
It's paramount that most of this energy in reserve comes from fat and not lean body mass, okay? Otherwise, the loss of lean body mass and fat in, in tandem can result in metabolic slowing, like severe metabolic slowing, which is going to lead you in the direction of, you know, which I, I not the term that I love, but, you know, kind of gets the point across, skinny fat, right? If you're losing a lot of weight and you're just looking at the scale, but you're losing fat and muscle, uh, you might not get where you're really wanting to get to, okay? So the scale doesn't tell the whole the full story. Just kind of like ketones don't tell the full story, you know, your scale doesn't tell the full story either. Uh, so there's a recipe for, re, you know, Skinny fat is a recipe for rebound weight gain, and a significant reason why, and it's a significant reason why many, many diets fail. Uh, so if you have this equation, caloric deficit plus loss of lean body mass, right? So you're not eating enough, but you're not you know, maintaining your lean body, you're not, you're not maintaining your muscle mass, is going to result, is going to equal metabolic slowing which is going to go to fat loss plateaus. It's going to give you a skinny fat result, and it's going to give you subsequent rebound fat gain. So I hope that kind of you know equation makes sense because not all weight loss is the same, and you know this. Many weight loss studies show that you know at least one-fourth of the weight lost is muscle mass. Luckily, higher protein diets can help combat against this. Okay, So here's some, here's some, uh, some of the research. Let me quote some of the research for you. High-protein diets help preserve lean mass in dieters, especially lean dieters that are going that are getting really lean, like competition prep. To, to minimize lean mass loss, dieting athletes should consume around 1.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight. Okay. When comparing higher protein diets with lower protein diets during an energetic deficit and exercise, higher protein diets promoted greater lean mass gain and fat mass loss. And eating more protein than dietary recommendations resulted in less hunger, increased energy expenditure, and preservation or increases in lean body mass. So overall, the evidence suggests that one gram of protein per pound of body weight is close to the minimum as far as maintaining lean body mass when in a prolonged caloric deficit. Of course, many factors come into play besides total protein when it comes to preserving lean body mass in a caloric deficit. So there's things, I mean, other factors such as body composition when you started, right? The severity of the deficit, that's a huge factor. And if you're going to lose lean body mass or not, you know, your training schedule, are you, how hard are you working out? All these things play a role in preserving lean body mass, but protein is a crucial factor in warding off the loss of lean body mass when in a caloric deficit. Okay, I want to talk about this study real quick, uh, where they put overweight young men in a fairly steep 40% caloric restricted diet and combined it with high intensity workouts for one month. Okay, one group ate high protein, which they classified high as one gram per pound. I'll talk about whether I think that's high later on. Uh, one group ate moderate protein, which was 0.6 grams per pound of body weight, you know, which I would call that low protein, but they call that moderate. Uh, the conclusions were both groups lost the same amount of weight on the scale, but the high protein group increased lean body mass while losing fat, while the moderate protein group preserved lean mass, resulting in vastly different body compositions. Now, I think it's important to mention because I just mentioned, you know, one gram per pound is really kind of a minimum for prolonged fat loss in a caloric deficit. This was, you know, one month. This is not a long-term study. Uh, so, you know, th there's differences between long-term, short-term, you know, results. So they were able to preserve lean body mass in the first month, which does not surprise me. Uh, 
and, and you know i'm not going to dive into all the details why that doesn't surprise me because then i'll just go down another tangent <laughs> we need to stay on track and get this finished uh but usually at the beginning of a diet if someone's overweight you there's more flexibility to do things less optimal and still get good results in compared to if you're already semi-lean uh fat loss you need to be you need to be more dialed in more optimum to to continue to get to you know a lesser uh, body fat mass okay let's talk about the protein advantage so high protein diets have a metabolic advantage protein helps to maintain or even improve lean body mass it induces greater thermogenesis and is inefficient in energy production which is gluconeogenesis which we already talked about energy is needed to process what we eat a lot of energy is needed to process what we eat most of the energy we use is you know used to process what we eat uh and this is called the thermic effect of food and the energy requirements for each macronutrient is is different for example fat you know is zero to three percent carbohydrates five to ten percent protein 20 to 30 percent so varying macronutrient combinations can add up to several hundred calories a day in just the energy required to digest the food so if you compound that day after day, year after year, this can be the difference between obesity and diabetes versus a healthy body composition and properly functioning metabolism. So additionally, animal protein sources induce greater thermogenesis than plant-based protein sources. Uh, research has shown that people with chronically elevated levels of branched-chain amino acids, which are high in meat-based protein, are leaner, they're more insulin-sensitive, sen- and resistant to diet-induced obesity. So there's many studies that elucidate this protein advantage that high protein diets cause more fat loss compared to normal or low protein diets when calories are kept equal. So high protein diets help to make sustaining a caloric deficit easier by creating a self-imposed deficit that, I mean, they do create self-imposed deficits that aid in fat loss, you know, without the standard calorie tracking and measuring and monitoring everything. And they are often shown to be more satisfying and effective at reducing hunger during caloric restriction, which we already kind of talked about, you know, the satiating effects of, of high protein diets. So I'll take a breath there. (laughs) I think this is an important time to discuss fasting, uh, which I know is a controversial topic, and I'm kind of on the unpopular side of fasting, at least when it comes to body composition, Uh, because many people do use fasting as a tool to help control caloric intake, and it can be an effective way to create a caloric deficit. However, it's important to mention the potential downsides of prolonged fasting. So throughout the day, the body breaks down old and damaged proteins. Okay, this creates a need for about three to 400 grams of protein every single day. But you don't have to eat that much protein because as we talked about, the body uh, recycles whatever it can. But it can't recycle all those proteins. Uh, and, you know, proteins get used in metabolism. They get lost through daily activity, uh, like through the skin cells, you know, through hair uh, DNA breakdown, sweat, urine, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about protein loss already, I believe. So anyways, we have to eat the protein that we lose and that we can't recycle. And if we don't, the body's going to eat that protein from our muscle and our tissues. The body's going to catabolize itself. Now, while fasting, the body can only get amino acids it needs from its own protein, right? About 85% is stolen from skeletal muscle, muscle and the rest from skin. So for example, after you wake up, now this is often more than 10 hours of fasting, right? Because if your last meal is at 6 p.m. and your first meal is at 8 a.m., you know, that's more than 10 hours of fasting. It's not quite what people would say is intermittent fasting, but it's a decently, you know, decently long fast. Uh, but after you wake up, 
muscle protein breakdown is 30% greater than muscle protein synthesis. So what's essentially happening is the body is stealing essential amino acids for organs to keep you alive. Now, this is even worse for lean people who will lose an even higher, you know, uh, portion of muscle, right? Uh, so consistently fasting not only results in the body down-regulating muscle protein synthesis, but other systems like immune function in order to reduce the amount of essential amino acids that the body needs. So listen, I'm not saying, I am not saying, I'm not saying, underline not, uh, that fasting is bad. In the context of our modern diet, it is often a very good thing. And if you uh, fast-forwarded me to get to the second part and you missed in the first part where I talked about you know longevity and the balancing of anabolic and catabolic pathways, uh, this will be a good time to go revisit that, listen in there, uh, or go check it out in the in the article that I wrote because uh, that's a super important you know concept that I think that I really you know if nothing else got hammered home in this article that concept of anabolic and catabolic pathways and balancing those would be you know worth its weight in gold I think. Okay. What I am saying is that maintaining, building lean body mass is a very important part of the fat loss equation, and an overemphasis on fasting can be suboptimal. It's one reason if you've heard of protein sparing modified fast, it's such a successful approach to rapidly losing fat and improving body composition. Because what it is is it's basically fasting, but keeping you know protein high enough to to uh, to preserve lean body mass. You know, try and keep a positive nitrogen balance. Uh, so if you keep three plus meals of protein throughout the day, you keep stimulating muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. Uh, like I said, helps keep a positive nitrogen balance, helps signal to the body that although that you may be in a steep caloric deficit, it kind of tells the body, hey, I'm, I, you know, I got, mu- I got, I'm getting protein for muscle. Let's use energy from, um, from the fat reserves and not from muscle, right? So it'll use that deficit, deficit uh, energy from, from fat more likely. Okay, it's kind of like the reverse of nutrient partitioning, but again, that's another rabbit hole that I'm going to stay clear of right now. Okay, so overdoing fasting can, you know, besides what you know, eating into muscle and you know, hurting lean body mass, and and you know, in context of body composition, it can have other adverse uh, consequences, such as like the psychological relationship with food. Like I see it very, very often, people that overly focus on fasting what happens is they obsessively think about food all the time all the time all the time and you know their willpower might be strong for several weeks several months maybe even several years but it's just a matter of time before it breaks you know gives into binge eating guilt and feel people feeling like failure and in the long term you know failure to adhere to a healthy diet okay so let's talk a little bit about muscle building and protein and just like we don't want to lose too much muscle while losing fat we don't want to gain too much fat when we put on muscle this is commonly seen in the bodybuilding world i've done it myself uh uh, when an athlete does a dirty bulk i actually put on a ton of weight not even doing a dirty bulk it was like a clean bulk like i ate mostly healthy foods i was trying to gain you know put on a ton of muscle and i put on a lot of fat with that i have a video online that shows kind of like the before after i my i did a big bulk up and then i did a, a bodybuilding cut anyways uh you don't want to do a dirty bulk. That's what I'm saying. With this approach, muscle isn't the only thing that hypertrophies. So you might be building muscle, but fat hypertrophies too. And excess fat, uh, if you start putting on more and more fat, it hinders muscle growth via alterations in hormonal states. For example, reduced insulin sensitivity and decreased testosterone. 
But the good news is dietary protein appears to have a protective effect, effect against fat gain during times of energy surplus, especially when combined with resistance training. So for example, bulking athletes appear to be best served by consuming more than 2.2 grams per kilogram per day and perhaps as high as 3.4 grams per kilogram per day. Uh, so whether consuming more than this provides additional uh, benefit, the, research, the researchers say it still requires investigation, uh, but consuming less than 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, they found to be insufficient in terms of gaining lean body mass. Okay, so are there upper limits to protein intake? So there's actually very little research in what I would consider very high protein diets. There are a couple interesting studies that investigated diets with approximately 1.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight and 2 grams of protein per pound of body weight. Now, 2 grams of of protein per body weight is considered extremely high for most people. Uh, Not for me personally, not so much. But anyways, what they found in the the researchers who looked at the 1.5 grams per pound of body weight, eating a diet four times the RDA of protein resulted in positive changes in lean body mass among participants without associated gains in fat mass. It was not shown to be dangerous to kidneys or liver. And then the researchers that looked at two grams per pound, uh, two grams of protein per pound of body weight, they found that consuming 5.5 times the RDA in a hypercaloric diet showed no increases in body fat. Uh, so the evidence suggests that dietary protein may be the key macronutrient in terms of promoting positive changes in body composition. And there is scant information to identify an upper limit to the capacity to metabolize protein by healthy individuals, Uh, which leads me to like the next question I get all the time is about rabbit starvation. People are concerned about high protein diets combined with low fats and low low carbs uh, and, and causing something called rabbit starvation. So there's these two researchers, Speth and Spielman, and they looked at some of the literature where people ate more than 45% of dietary energy as protein and noted that some people experienced nausea and diarrhea. It's now commonly known as rabbit starvation because rabbit meat has very little fat. So if you're trying to subsist on just rabbit meat, you'd be eating a diet that's really high in protein, low fat, low carbohydrate, right? Uh, and the effects of this di- this kind of diet were studied experimentally in two, you know, infamous or famous, depending on how you look at it, ar- Arctic explorers who are closely monitored for a year while only eating meat. Now, during this time, they remained fit and healthy. Besides a brief period when one of them ate only lean meat, estimated around 60% of energy as protein, and he developed symptoms of quote-unquote rabbit starvation. And his symptoms were quickly reversed when he just increased the fat content back to around 75%. And while some archaeological evidence suggests that hunter-gatherer populations would eat up to but not beyond like around 40% of dietary energy from protein, there still isn't um, like a quote-unquote rabbit starvation limit that's been identified. Like many people, including myself, have consumed intakes of 50% plus of dietary energy from protein for relatively long periods of time without exhibiting any of these rabbit starvation symptoms. And I think part of the reason has to do with adaptive measures to high-protein diets and improved efficiencies of amino acid oxidation and urea synthesis. That's why I think it's hard to come up with a true maximum for rabbit starvation, uh, if there is one, as it's it's a moving target re- related to an, individual, uh, uh, an individual's uh, adaptive capacity. 
So at the end of the day, rabbit starvation isn't something I'd personally worry about, uh, even though I eat you know extremely high percentages of protein quite often. Because uh, just as the Arctic Explorer did when he started feeling bad, you can simply just increase fat intake in the, in the, and quickly reverse the symptoms. And like I mentioned, this is not just all about you know vanity because improving body composition uh, means better health. Eating a high-protein diet significantly reduces several cardiometabolic risk factors like weight circumference, blood pressure, triglycerides, and improved body composition wards off the threats of sarcopenia that so often appear late in life. Uh, and a healthy body composition helps to simply improve quality of life. It makes it easier to get up with the kids, keep up with the grandkids, facil- uh, facilitates better sleep and enhanced energy to enjoy life. All right, so we're moving in kind of to the last sections here where I kind of want to talk about high-protein diets and compare them with plants and animals, okay? Because not all proteins are created equal. Different protein sources have different amino acid contents. Further, different proteins come pre-packaged with other molecules that can facilitate or hinder the quality of that protein. So animal proteins are called complete proteins because they contain all the amino acids in sufficient quantities. Not only are animal proteins complete proteins, but they're also high in the branch chain amino acids, which I talked about, uh, because they account for 50% of all the essential amino acids that you need. Uh, Now, on the flip side, most plant-based proteins are deficient in one or more amino acids and are thus considered incomplete proteins. And I think an an analogy helps put this in perspective. So imagine you need to build a house, right? And you have nine essential materials to build this house. And you have 11, 11 other materials that are that are needed, but they are less essential because if they're missing, you can just use one of the nine in its place. Now, imagine you don't have one of the nine essential materials, and that missing material is critical in putting the roof on. Well, you're going to have holes in your roof, and your house is likely going to be weak, probably easily damaged, and maybe it won't function at all, right? So this is a basic analogy of incomplete proteins. Incomplete proteins are inadequate with re- with regard to at least one of the nine essential amino acids. These limiting amino acids act as a bottleneck, which impede protein synthesis. So like I said, most plant-based proteins are incomplete proteins. Seeds like wheat, rice, and nuts, they're all real poor in lysine. Beans and legumes, they're poor in the sulfurous amino acids like methionine and cysteine. And corn is poor in tryptophan. So, for example, say nuts were your main source of protein. You could be in serious danger of a lysine deficiency, which could cause problems with protein synthesis. And because we need to make proteins for nearly every process and every cell in our body, this can have serious ramifications. Now, there's a category of amino acids called conditionally essential amino acids, which we talked on earlier. So if we extend the analogy a bit further, imagine the house you built with the nine essential materials caught on fire and a hole was burned through the roof. Well, under certain circumstances like growth, stress, illness, materials that weren't essential become essential to fix the hole in the roof. Okay, so the materials, the amino acids are con- are considered conditionally essential. So a real life example relating to this fire example, um, burn victims, they need significant amounts of glutamine to heal. Now in this situation, glutamine becomes essential, which it's normally not, uh, because the body can't make enough on its own. So in this situation of a burn victim, glutamine, which is normally not an essential amino acid, becomes essential and is therefore classified as a conditionally essential amino acid. So 
While plants do use the same 20 amino acids to build their proteins as animals do, most have at least one, if not several, limiting essential amino acids. And because these sources don't provide enough of an essential amino acid, it's important that they are combined with other protein sources to avoid a deficiency. So if you combine, so if you combine plant-based proteins with adequate meat, amino acid deficiency amino acid deficiencies are largely a non-issue, right? Uh, But where this becomes risky is if people do not eat meat and thus have to combine plant-based sources to try and ensure they get adequate amounts of all the essential amino acids. So for example, a grain-legume combination like beans and corn or rice and soybeans, that can help avoid a deficiency. However, even with this strategy, these combinations tend to be low in lysine, Uh, I'm sorry, leucine, no matter how you mix and match, leucine is one of the uh, branched chain amino acids. Essential amino acids is a branched chain amino acid. Uh, And this issue isn't easily overcome without supplementation. One solution maybe would be to try to eat a whole lot of corn, but (laughs) that's a a whole nother problem, which I've written about uh, as well on the blog if you want to check out the issues with corn. Uh, Another issue with relying on plant-based proteins that is often overlooked is the huge metabolic risk this poses so if you rely on plant-based proteins uh you result in eating 25 to 35 percent more calories usually carbohydrate based calories and when you have a diet with a high carbohydrate load often in caloric excess and poor quantities of branched chain amino acids like plant most plant proteins are the result is often poor body composition and it's a metabolic disaster so high carbohydrate low branched chain amino acids that equals poor body composition you know metabolic dysfunction so beyond that is the protein quality, and there's a rating rating system used to evaluate protein quality called the DIASS, the Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. So it rates protein quality based on digestibility, absorption, and the ability to make other proteins. So the DIASS of meat and eggs score on the highest of the charts. Guess what scores on the lowest? Cereal grains. Uh, and one of the reasons is digestibility. So animal proteins have digest, d- digestibility over 90%. Plant-based proteins have digestibility generally between 60 to 80%. And if we look at another measure, it's called the PDCAAS, which is the Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score. Uh, A maximum score is a 1. Animal meats like beef score 0.9, compared to plant-based foods would score about 0.5 to 0.7. So plant-based proteins are considered low quality because they have weak amino acid profiles, poor digestibility rates, and they come prepackaged with anti-nutrients that interfere with digestion and absorption. So for example, protease inhibitors like trypsin inhibitor, you know, phytates and tannins, they tag along with these plant-based foods, making it difficult for the body to digest and extract the nutrition. Okay, so I want to segue into, you know, this topic that a lot of people have a concern with it and that's like how you like denaturing proteins cooked meat versus raw meat so but i mean by now you've probably surmised that i think most of the protein we eat should be animal-based proteins right uh humans have been eating meat for millions of years even before the advent of fire estimated you know around four hundred thousand years ago but there's some different estimates out there that that, that number isn't as important uh because while the ability to control fire enabled humans to eliminate parasites from food, you know, keep warm and cold climates, and it offered protection from predators and insects, you know, it wasn't a necessary component to our meat-based diets. So I don't think the question is if we can eat raw meat. I mean, Arctic people do sushi and steak tartare, you know, or common dishes. You know, I eat my steak so rare that most people consider it raw. Uh, but I think the question is really, you know, if we should be eating our meat raw, is it better? Uh, and there is some evidence that 
The advent and subsequent use of fire for cooking enabled certain evolutionary adaptations. Uh, you know, it may have helped further shrink the intestinal tract, which feasibly could allow an even bigger brain. Um, some liver enzymes suggest adaptation to cooking. I mean, our jaws have shrunk compared to earlier Homo sapien ancestors. Uh, but unfortunately, like most things in nutrition, there's no clear-cut winner to the cooked versus raw debate. Uh, there's actually some potential pros and cons to both. So the obvious negative of raw meat, you know, especially meats like chicken and pork, is that bacterial contamination can become an issue. You know, when early humans left the trees for the grasslands, we were untrained, ill-equipped hunters. You know, we were also the easy prey of fierce, well-trained predators. So, you know, early humans would do the obvious. We were scavengers. And in the early goings, humans were likely these carrion feeders, which means we ate on the dead and rotting flesh. We'd let the professionals do the killing, and then we'd hurry in for the scraps and then return to safety. So although we weren't great killers in the early get-go, our stomachs evolved through natural selection to do the pathogen fighting for us. So our strong, the strong acid in our stomachs kill off pathogens that reside in the rotting animals that we would scavenge, uh, and it also improved the digestion of meat. So acidic stomachs separate carnivores from herbivores, like the acid filters out the bad pathogens while facilitating digestion in the small intestines. You know, for example, baboons, who are considered one of our closest relatives, they have stomach acids that are about a thousand times less acidic than ours. Uh, but it is common for people who eat a more standard American diet to have poor, you know, acid production, which may not kill microbes as effectively, thus making consumption, you know, consumption, consumption of raw meat a bit riskier. Uh, but, you know, one of the chief concerns about cooking meat is that the proteins may get denatured. And what this means is that there's a three-dimensional structure of, of, the pro, of a protein, and uh, it can change from its native conformation. If these tertiary and quaternary structures of a protein are altered by physical factors like high temperature or changes in pH or even variations in sodium concentration gradients, the protein is considered denatured and it loses its native biological functionality. Uh, and depending on what kind of meat, cooking, you know, cooking method, temperature, you know, this is likely happening to varying degrees. So for example, collagen, which is the connective tissue that separates bundles of muscle fibers, you know, it turns into gelatin at around 140 to 170 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, the protein inside the muscle fibers like myosin can also be denatured around 120 degrees Fahrenheit and myoglobin 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, myoglobin turns from red to brown, you know, to the red, from red to a brown tan color uh, at that temperature. But, you know, what's unclear is whether this is good or bad. This denature is going to happen in the stomach regardless. And often when these proteins are denatured by cooking, pepsin, which is an en enzyme in the stomach, can digest them better, actually. However, on the contrary, the cooking can destroy the natural enzymes in raw meat that aid in digestion, as demonstrated by a famous Russian sci uh, scientist. So this famous Russian scientist did an experiment with two frogs. One of the frogs was cooked and one was uncooked. He then placed each into a cup that was filled with a carnivore stomach acid, HCL. So the uncooked frog, the raw frog, completely dissolved. The frog that was cooked remained mostly intact with only moderate changes to its surface. Now the reason is that the cells in the raw frog underwent something called autolysis, which means self-destruction. Uh, and and that, that happened when it was put in the, in the HCL, the stomach acid. And all living cells will undergo this process when exposed to certain conditions. Uh, in the case of the raw frog, when the HCL invaded the, the cells, it caused the release of enzymes that initiate the autolysis and self-digestion process. 
So the combination of the HCL, the acid, uh, and the frog's natural enzymes resulted in complete digestion. In the case of the frog that was cooked before it was put in the acid, its natural enzymes that would initiate the autolysis process were destroyed in the cooking. So it lost the ability to self-digest. So the HCL was the only factor that was acting on the surface of the tissues. Uh, so And internally, it didn't have the autolysis to completely digest it. So, uh, you know, that's kind of a case for, you know, eating more raw meats. Uh, when it comes to dairy, we see a similar issue. Like the pasteurization of dairy, the pro is the con, meaning... Heating the, the milk kills the bacteria, both the potentially contaminated microbes as well as those that are beneficial and aid in the digestion of milk. Uh, what I think is a beautiful demonstration of both the pros and cons of cooking uh, is demonstrated with eggs. So roughly 60% of the egg, uh, 60% of the protein in an egg is the egg white. And these proteins are called albumin. And the most abundant one, albumin makes up about um, roughly half of the egg's white protein. Uh, and in its raw form, it blocks our natural protein digesting enzymes. Uh, another egg white protein called avidin binds to biotin, which is an essential B vitamin, and prevents the body from absorbing it. Luckily, both of these are denatured with cooking at around 176 degrees Fahrenheit, which increases their bioavailability and inactivates avidin's biotin binding property. So these represent a beneficial aspect of protein denaturing. But on the flip side, if you look at the yolk, uh, it makes about 40% of the egg's protein and it's full of nutrients, some of which may get lost or damaged with the cooking. So for this reason, I recommend cooking aids, at least how I like them, uh, you know, over easy where I cook the white but leave the, the egg yolk basically raw for maximum nutrition. So unfortunately, there's not a substantial body of evidence to guide us in making many of these raw versus cooked decisions. Uh, there are studies that show that cooking can actually increase bioavailability, and there are studies that show that cooking can destroy enzymes and inactivate vitamins. There are some people who swear by and thrive on eating just raw meat, uh, and they all contacted me for some reason. <laughs> uh, but they do often note that it wasn't until they went wildly raw did they achieve complete remission of health issues. And they commonly report that eating raw meat reduces the body's digestive load and thereby makes them feel lighter, improves their energy, and they experience a feeling of like true satiation and nourishment. Uh, but most of these are case reports and anecdotal and limited in number. Uh, and so just kind of as a, you know, like I, something I think is worth mentioning is if you do decide to test like a more raw approach or incorporating some raw meats, I do recommend protecting yourself from parasites and pathogens by, you know, buying your meat from reliable sources, freezing the meat, and then thawing it out in the refrigerator for just a day or so before eating it. Uh, and for many people, the stomach needs to regain its natural, strong, acidic properties uh, but once it does, it has increased abilities to kill parasites and pathogens and for more efficiently uh, digesting the meat as well. My general recommendation in this regard is, you know, cook your meat how you enjoy it most. That's kind of the, you know, the underlying factor. If, if you think you have to eat it raw and therefore you just avoid eating meat, that's the worst thing I think you can do. So it's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's you know, don't do that. <laughs> but for example, when I first started eating just meat, I liked my steaks cooked, I would say medium to maybe medium rare, but roughly medium. 
But as months with months with went by, I started enjoying them more rare and more rare and more rare. And now today, generally all I do is a very quick sear on the you know on the outsides, uh, and that's it. And the inside's basically raw. It is raw. <laughs> but with beef, with beef, for example, if it has contamination, it does start on the outside. So a quick sear, you know, kind of acts as a safeguard. Uh, but this is also why I cook my ground beef more thoroughly as it has increased surface area that increases the risk of contamination. So yeah. And regarding like the other meats I eat, like, like chicken, I cook pretty thoroughly pork, the same, you know, seafood is variable. Uh, some things are more, uh, cooked more thoroughly, other things less thoroughly, but it's worth noting that one thing that we lost that our ancestors likely got be eating raw meat is sodium and water so in the u.s meat is hung for several weeks before it goes to market and this allows for the blood to be extracted you know the red juice in meat is myoglobin it's not blood so for example a hundred thousand years ago when a hunter made a kill the meal had more sodium and water from the fresh meat and this sodium and water content is largely lost in our meat today uh, for example, many animals get most of all, you know, all the water and all the sodium they need simply eating them, you know, the meat, that's all they need. Uh, but this isn't so with our, you know, meat eating today, unless you're hunting and eating it right then and there, which is <laughs> pretty rare. Uh, so it is one reason why, you know, I do salt my meat for the most part and, uh, and I drink water. So let's conclude this mammoth of a podcast article. Uh, we've gone through a lot, and if you've made it this far, congrats. You probably know more about protein than you know most dietitians, and probably your doctor as well. Uh, but more importantly, I hope you now have you know you can make more informed decisions about this very important macronutrient to achieve whatever your health objectives might be. Uh, if you had concerns about eating too much protein, I hope that's helped alleviate some of those fears. Uh, but let's recap. So in part one, uh, first we saw how steak does not equal cake. In fact, the evidence suggests that protein does not increase the rate of gluconeogenesis and the insulin to glucagon ratio controls glucose production and ketogenesis. And this ratio doesn't change much in low-carb dieters with variable protein consumption. And while there are compelling arguments that protein does increase glucose oxidation in no low-carb dieters uh, and that this de- and this can de- decrease ketone production, but this is often largely a non-issue with respect to most pe- people's health objectives. Secondly, we reviewed proteins consumption, protein consumption as it relates to gout, and saw that a high diet in purines, uh, i.e., meat, isn't the primary driver of, gra- of gout. Rather, it's dysfunctional clearance and subsequent buildup of uric acid as a result of often elevated insulin and impaired kidney function, a situation that's exacerbated by fructose and alcohol consumption. Then we discussed uh, impaired kidney function and its role in gout. We talked about the myth of too much protein protein being hard on the kidneys. Uh, most kidney disease is due to diabetes and hypertension. This is a carbohydrate problem, not a protein problem. And the most reliable way to injure the kidneys is consuming a diet high in sugar carbs, which induces chronic elevations in blood sugar, insulin, and blood pressure. Fourth, we discussed the common fear of too much protein causing bone health issues due to its acid content. Yet time and again, when researchers researchers try and find a link between high-protein diets and increased risk of bone fractures, not only do they not find a correlation, but they find that protein intake is positively associated with bone mineral density. 
Fifth, in the fears around protein, we looked at longevity, specifically discussing the common villains like mTOR and IGF-1. We went into detail of what I think is one of the critical keys to health and longevity, the balance between anabolic and catabolic states. Lastly, in wrapping up fears around protein, we discussed amino acid balances, specifically methionine and glycine, and here we saw how the body can use, eliminate, and recycle amino acids in an intricate system that is designed to keep homeostatic balances. Then, in part two, we looked at the most essential macronutrient. We discussed how the real fear around protein shouldn't be eating too much, rather not consuming enough. First, we discussed this in the context of the protein leverage hypothesis, where researchers hypothesized that protein could be the key to solving obesity and the common metabolic diseases of today. In essence, if we aren't meeting our protein needs, we will overeat in an attempt to meet them, and this overeating compounded over time is causing our most common health epidemics. While not discussed in the original protein leverage hypothesis, we talked about how carbs and certain fats can further exacerbate the need to continuously overeat, overriding our natural satiety mechanisms. Also, uh, we we related the protein leverage hypothesis to a species and evolutionary perspective. Humans have been eating meat for millions of years. Meat-based high-protein diets are what allowed us to dispense dispense of our large fiber-digesting guts that our primate ancestors had in favor of massive energy hogging brains. And if we look past the cultural conditioning of the last century and even further back past the industrial and agricultural revolutions, we'll find that meat is the foundational baseline food for humans. Next, we looked at the protein's role in body composition, burning fat and building muscle, uh, and saw how the protein advantage can help people reach their, their individual goals faster and more easily. We also discussed fasting as well as a word of caution around overdoing it, overdoing the abstinence of food, notably protein. Finally, we discussed how not all proteins are created equally, specifically how plant-based and animal-based proteins differ in quality. We also discussed how proteins from the same food can differ based on cooking and examine the pros and cons of cooked versus raw meat. Now, to officially wrap this this post up on protein, I want to discuss one last thing. Do we need to revise the RDA on protein? Pragmatically, protein is the most essential macronutrient. The origin of the word comes from the Greek protos, which means first, which reflects protein supremacy in human nutrition. We all have basal metabolic requirements of protein from obligatory nitrogen loss. But just because we can survive on a certain bare minimum doesn't mean we should. Uh, so basically what this means is where the RDA recommendations comes from is this bare minimum. It's the amount we need to meet minimums to avoid general population from getting sick. The RDA recommends around you know roughly 50 grams of protein per day. Uh, but for most people, this is under the protein floor of 15% as discussed in the protein leverage hypothesis. And if that hypothesis pans out, the RDA's recommendation are responsible for obesity and disease. And these recommendations absolutely need to be revised. Uh, the current RDA recommendations are even worse for certain demographics that need more protein, like sedentary populations, the elderly, pregnant women, and rapidly growing youth. And while current recommendations do at least recognize that different people need different amounts of protein, I think the recommendations are woefully inadequate. Now, as far as my baseline recommendation, it's impossible for me to recommend a certain amount of protein to you. Uh, we all have different ages, genders, health histories, goals, activity levels, and lifestyles. However, 
a number that I'm comfortable suggesting as a guideline, as kind of a baseline for most healthy adults, is about one gram of protein per pound of body weight. That's 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. This is a common baseline number for many in the bodybuilding world. It represents what I consider a minimum for maximum muscle building. While vastly oversimplified, I found this to be a good rule of thumb. It's a number that meets almost anyone's protein requirements. It's a number that helps optimize building and maintaining lean body mass, as well as satiety for fat loss and preventing prevention of overeating. It's a number that will help balance the anabolic-catabolic relationship that we discussed in part one uh, that I believe plays a central role in long-term health and wealth well-being now undoubtedly for a specific person a specific goal more or less protein may be more or less optimal many people have body composition as a primary goal may very well meet their goals faster and more easily with even higher protein for example i like to eat around 1.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight or even higher if doing a bodybuilding style fat loss cut Uh, In this situation, when in a prolonged caloric deficit, not losing muscle becomes a top priority. And very high protein helps prevent loss of lean body mass. It helps with satiety, and it even helps further with the protein advantage that we discussed in part two. Now, I think the elderly should also err on the high side with protein as well, like not below one gram per pound of body mass, or, you know, I would at least at least shoot for that. Sarcopenia, sarcopenia, which is the impairment of physical function combined with loss of muscle mass, is the primary age-related cause of frailty leading to disability, nursing home placement, fractures, falls, hospitalizations, you know, the reduced quality of life and premature death. That's not a minor issue. The older we get, the harder it is to build and maintain muscle mass. And to combat this, what's known as anabolic resistance, we need to eat more protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But just the opposite tends to happen as we age. We eat less protein. In the U.S., more than 40% of men and 55% of women over the age of 50 have sarcopenia. And the research is clear. Low protein intake is associated with frailty and worse physical function than a higher protein diet. Luckily, animal protein looks to be the solution here. So on the flip side, some people may feel or do better in deeper levels of nutritional ketosis and may see more optimal results as defined by their individual goals, their feelings, and how, they, and how they're functioning, you know, keeping their protein around 0.75 grams per pound of body weight, you know, somewhere around the 0.75 grams per pound range. Uh, what I recommend is use the one gram per pound as a baseline and experiment from there what works best for you and your life and your goals. Now, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to me go through this article. I you know, went on a couple of little tangents, but not I kept it pretty tight on to, you know, to script. Uh, and I hope to provide you the value you were looking for. You know, if you're interested in learning more about the other macronutrients, I would recommend I did a podcast on carbohydrates and also the, the article on par- carbohydrates. And at this moment, I the article on fat is being written and will, I will send it out in my newsletter, the Saturday 7, when it is ready. If you have not subscribed, subscribe to that. That's basically where I send all my best, best stuff. So I would, you know, love to have you as a member subscriber to the Saturday 7 newsletter and I can make sure you get all the content when it comes out. Uh, So again, thank you for listening and I will talk with you in the next one. Bye-bye. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.